Leaders Questions. Thanks to Cisco Systems and Exertus Ireland, providing a secure, intelligent platform for digital business. Visit intelligentit.ie. All right, you're very welcome along to another edition of Leaders Questions with Stuart Lancaster. Stuart, how are you? Very good, how are you? Very well. So this week our guest is somebody who you've worked with in the past. It's Sophie Goldsmith. Um, you would have worked with her from her time and your time at the RFU. She was part of the commercial department. You were obviously the uh, acting head coach and then the head coach. But I think um, very keen observers, and we've got very very many keen observers in our audience will recognize in the background of the picture that we're, we have now with Sophie is that there's a surfboard there, Sophie. So you've obviously gone uh, quite the distance from the concrete terrain of Twickenham to uh, somewhat sunnier climbs. I have. That's not my surfboard, by the way. Mine's <laughs> much bigger than that. Um, but yes, it's been quite a change moving to the west coast of the US. Um, but yeah, no, it's been great so far. So good. Early days still. But um, yeah, I still follow the rugby closely from over here. Congratulations, Lentz, on their win this weekend. Thank you. Um, but uh, yes, it's been an exciting time just to learn a new sport and uh, experience life on the West Coast. What did you guys do together, Stuart? So uh, I was uh, obviously head of elite player development during, um, during my time at the RFU 2007 to 2011. And when I got the uh, interim job, Sophie was already... Am I right in already in position? So you joined as part of John Steele's team. Yeah, I started um, in the September um, before yeah. the famous World Cup. <laughs> so, Infamous. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so, that, so that took place. Um, so Sophie would have been there maybe two months after. Uh, so just before the 2000 World Cup. I then got the interim job um, in January uh, and did that Six Nations um, up till uh, March 2012. And then... Obviously got the full-time job um, in the lead-up to 2015. And so Sophie joined what was very much a new team. A new CEO came in, Ian Ritchie. Um, obviously there was Sophie um, in the senior management team. And a whole load of other new dynamic staff arrived at the same time. And uh, the whole thing, actually, which was quite... Uh, it was struggling along. You know, we had no CEO, no chairman. Um, and uh, people like Sophie came in, brought it to life. And obviously in the lead-up to the World Cup, you know, we worked closely together, myself obviously as head coach at that point, trying to um, make sure we were on the same page with what the values that I was trying to deliver um, to the team and uh, to the public um, was mirrored with what Sophie was doing with the commercial partners, the media, etc, etc. So no, we, you know, we were pretty closely really and um, obviously the World Cup came and went, um, I left and uh, Sophie, how long were you off to... Um, Sophie, you were probably 2016, was it 2016? Yeah, so I left not too long after you, probably another sort of six or seven months after you. Yeah. Just to, to, to talk a little bit about this, because um, it can frequently feel like many sports organisations have a team and a commercial organisation, and these two things never really meet, and there's quite a lot of tension between them, you would say, and you wouldn't really suggest in many of the organisations around the world that you look in they don't really seem very aligned frequently. No, I think, I think that's definitely true of what happened in, um, in the lead-up to, from 2007 to 2011, there's no doubt. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a disconnect and, you know, we, I, I recognised where the, the importance of the commercial side of the organisation into helping build the team. 
And we were very lucky in that the partners we had with the RFE at the time were very supportive. But it did take coordination, it didn't happen by accident. So, you know, they would have a, typically have a, you know, they'd pay for um, an, an agreement with the RFU, which would provide them access to the players. They'd want, you know, photo opportunities or media opportunities or whatever. So the big thing we worked on was two things, really. One was making sure that we were aligned on the message so that the message that we were delivering from the team was mirrored through the commercial team and that the appearances that involved the players was done in keeping with the plan for the World Cup, you know, the strategic plan for us from a performance point of view. So um, it worked well, to be honest. You know, when I look back now and I think about the time and effort everyone put into planning the events, um, the quality um, of the events and the timing and how, how it fitted in with our performance plan, I don't think, I don't if you agree, Sophie, it could have been done much better. I thought it was really, really well aligned. Yeah, no, it was a fantastic experience. I mean, like Stuart said when um, he came in, sort of the, the culture internally and how the performance side of the organisation was working with the commercial and media side was pretty disjointed. Um, and that fundamentally um, changed in large part thanks to Stuart's leadership and, and vision and collaborative approach. When you get sponsors such as O2, Canterbury, etc., really aligned behind your vision, they have much bigger marketing and media budgets than we could ever dream of. Um, so to have them more broadly communicating what we wanted English rugby to stand for, what um, Stuart wanted the team to represent, um, we felt that was very powerful. Um, and that reset was was huge. Um, it led to a lot of the success that the RFU had, quite frankly, commercially. Um, we went, you know, on a significant kind of growth spurt um, leading up to the World Cup. That obviously created a lot of momentum, but a lot of it was back on sort of the the reorganised and represented um, culture of English rugby and the access that Stuart gave us. I mean, it's not often that you get the opportunity to take a head coach to meetings with you, um, to have dinners with key partners, to call them up, to congratulate them when certain things happen in their organisation. Um, and it really, at that time, differentiated us from, from other organisations. I felt very fortunate and had a lot of respect for Stuart. I think we got on very well. Um, he has impeccable integrity and really stood for something very powerful. And that was kind of a magnet for us to build on in the right way. He was also very disciplined and we couldn't have the players getting distracted with commercial stuff. I could have had them busy 24-7 if I wanted doing appearances and what have you. So there was definitely a time and a place for it. And the meticulous planning um, that Stuart took us through, which literally started probably two years before the 2015 World Cup, um, really paid off. Um, and um, yeah, no, it was a great learning experience for me. Um, something that I think collectively we're probably both very proud of and, and the partners really benefited um, from it, which uh, ultimately was the most important thing to get them continuing to invest in the RFU and actually expanding their relationships um, is what happened. That was the end result. So that was kind of a win-win all around. So one of the themes of the leaders' questions that we've done has been the why, like why organisations do the things they do. And maybe you could just take talk to us a little bit briefly about that. I mean, essentially, making your corporate partners be able to grow their business is great for them, but for you guys within the RFU, growing the sport is impossible unless you actually use their big marketing budgets to reach new, new customers, new players, new fans, new supporters. Yeah, it was interesting. When I started at the RFU, the commercial department was sort of seen as the bad, the bad department. It was all very negative. If anyone had to do anything commercial, it was almost, you know, well, why would you want to do that? And we really tried to change that kind of mindset. 
that ultimately the commercial department was driving um, the ability to invest in the game. You know, we're basically a charity. The RFU's vision and mission was to um, grow rugby in England through our performance and our values. I still remember the vision statement very well. And um, one of the reasons that you know they have been successful is because they are able to invest a significant amount in doing that. And that's because of our commercial success. Not commercial success to make all the employees rich, otherwise Stuart and I would be retired by now, but to actually invest back in the grassroots um, area of the game. And the amount that we were able to invest increased significantly um, during that kind of four-year period. Um, so I think that was really an important thing, and it kind of shifted the mindset. And I think once people kind of understood that, and actually we're all on the same team, and the more money we make, the better it is for the sport, um, that allowed us to just have a very different relationship. And that was really led by Stuart and kind of the elite performance side of the game. Um, we also had a guy called Steve Granger, who's actually still there, who, again, Stuart worked very closely with, and he really got it. Um, so to take that to the next stage, yeah, as, as we uh, just mentioned briefly, um, when you get big brands supporting you properly, where the vision and values are really aligned, we were in a fortunate position. We had to work really hard to get our sponsors, but we were also very picky and selective. If there was a brand that didn't align with what we wanted to stand for, we wouldn't partner with them, whether that was morally, ethically, how they were promoting themselves, they absolutely had to be aligned with our vision. And if that was the case, then we knew that once they brought our relationship to life through TV advertising or radio ads or print ads, the power of what they could then showcase to their customers. I, I use O2 a lot because I think they kind of set the standard, quite frankly, in sponsorship globally, let alone rugby. They have 23 million customers in the UK and they made rugby the central part of their marketing campaign and budget. So we kind of do it in a cool, a slightly different way. It's a cool brand. They appeal to a different demographic and audience. And we were all about sort of growing the game as well. Um, so that was a really important catalyst to enable us to do that. Why did you do it? What was, what was in it for you as the coach to engage at the level with the vision that you did? Um, I just want, I wanted everything aligned. I wanted everything to be pulling in the, in the same direction. So um, I understood... Um, the the power of the media and the importance of aligning our message, you know, using the media as the as a tool to, to get the message out there about the team we were trying to build. Um, but I also understood um, the importance that commercial partners could play in translating that message or get get the message out there. So, O2, as Sophie mentioned, you know, they they were fantastic. So, you know, I would go, I would go and speak to them about what we were um, trying to achieve as a team. Um, giving them an insight and asking them if they're going to do campaigns to make it aligned um, because my voice on, on its own you know couldn't reach everyone in um, in England um, but the collective voice I felt could really could um, and uh, you know we e even to the extent that um, you know advertising campaigns or they come up with uh, Canterbury were, were great as well, BMW were fantastic. Um, they'd come up with create really fun, really creative um, campaigns to, to market the team. Um, but there was never once where I looked and thought, ooh, you know, that doesn't quite fit or that's, that's creating an, an arrogance in our team or makes us look arrogant. Um, so I think the work we did in the first instance, we, we, we'd have Commercial Partners Day um, and I'd see it as a, an absolutely key part of my job to go there and try and explain what we were trying to do, how we were trying to build the team, etc., etc. And... Um, the more we did that, the more they bought into it. The more I explained to them the importance of 
um, then being proactive in planning the activation. There was nothing more frustrating as a head coach where, you know, they, they hadn't taken up their allocation of, I don't know, three appearances and suddenly it's now a week before the Six Nations saying, actually, we've got an, an appearance and we need six of the squad for half the day. I'm like, jeez, mm. this, isn't, this isn't good planning. So we, that, that was one of the significant things we changed. Um, and, uh, you know, we had all sorts of debates. I remember there was a debate about, I don't know if Sophie remembers it, the, um, the colour of the shirt and, and, you know, Canterbury wanted to go down one route and I was going, I think it should be a red shirt, really. You know, the away shirt should be red because our home shirt's white and the flag's red and white. And, <laughs> um, and to be honest to Sophie, I think she was saying, well, this shirt might sell a bit better if it's a different colour. I'm going, mm, no, but anyway, to be fair to Sophie, she, she backed me and they, we went with the red shirt for that, for that year. Yeah, I think actually a lot, of talking about the show, we did have a lot of discussions about the show. <laughs> Quite creative in his own mind. Um, and it was also the power of the rose, yeah. because when that was one of uh, Stuart's many really big strengths, and going back to the real values and what was powerful. And a real learning for me was how quickly things can change in a good and bad way. I mean, under, after 2011, you know, we sort of spiralled out of control, quite frankly, for about three months and absolutely hit rock bottom. Um, but within three or four months, things had dramatically changed for the good. And a lot of that came, that came back to the power of the rose and just what rugby means culturally to people. I remember we did interviews with a broad cross-section of sort of stakeholders um, from the game um, and just the impact that rugby had had on their lives at all sorts of different levels, some really unexpected kind of stories. And therefore, we really heroed, as we called it, the rose um, and just the pride and, and the value of playing, playing for that um, symbol. Um, which again came through creatively in a lot of what we did and we really tried to um, make the rose as prominent as we could on the shirts and I think that was as much for the players as, as the fans but it was a pretty powerful um, strategy that I think really, really paid off. It's not stuff that everybody thinks about that like the outside world sees or would consider part of the coach's job but you definitely had this sense that you wanted this not to just be a team, an island on its own, even within the organisation, that you needed to reach out to the sponsors, to the fans, to everybody, to make sure that the whole thing was unified. Why did you, where did you come up with that idea? I think I think a lot of it I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd watched, obviously, as the Saxons coach in 2007 to 2011, and I'd watched a lot of these sorts of things unfold. Um, and the lack of alignment within the RFU between the team and the commercial department, or the team and the media. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the classic quotes was, you know, when a player turns up with appearances, the first question he asked is, what time can I leave? Um, and, and I don't think the players really understood the, how, the, how it all worked and the importance of it, not just for the team, but also for commercially, for the RFU, how the money can be reinvested in the game. Obviously, it helps, you know, they, they get paid to play for England, you know, all those little things that help them, but also the sort of life after rugby piece as well, where they could be using the opportunity. Um, during these windows to build relationships, to network with big brands and create close relationships. So all those things I, I didn't see happening. Um, and there was two or three really big, notable events in the World Cup that didn't go well in 2011. Um, that ended up in the, in the press for all the wrong reasons. Um, I remember we went to New Zealand wearing a black shirt and, you know, just little things like that. And, and um, so... You know, I was privy to the um, reviews of the 2000 World Cup, you know, the players' review, the management review, the club's review, but also the internal RFU uh, findings. Um, and it was amazing 
of, I think I went away and with all those reviews, wrote down, I think it was 159 things that we needed to sort out. And obviously there was some on-field stuff. There was a lot of stuff that wasn't on the field, mm. and it, how it can derail a team, you know, with an organisation the size of the RFU, um, and um, how that, if that dynamic's not managed. So, you know, certainly Sophie and I worked closer together, obviously, um, and then I brought in um, Matt Parker, as, um, who had, had worked for British Cycling. He'd been through an Olympic cycle. So... You know, the perception he was in as the marginal gains guy, but actually it wasn't. All, all I wanted him to do was coordinate the um, S&C medical and performance teams within my management team. Um, I wanted him to liaise with the commercial department and make sure it all fitted within the performance plan. And he was hugely helpful also in family and friends. I mean, that's something else that, you know, Sophie, I'm sure she remembers. You know, the support that the, the commercial partners gave for family and friends um, and how, you know, how, how far... People went out of their way to help the team become successful. I mean, O2, I mean, they put on a, the send-off event for the Rugby World Cup at the O2 Arena. You know, provided, it was like 18,000 people wear the rose, bring your white shirt and uh, take that with the, the tribute, the, well, they weren't the tribute band, they were the band. Um, <laughs> as tribute, it was the proper take that. Um, and, uh, you know, they put an image of the, of the, uh, the rose on the O2 Arena and just amazing, amazing stuff, really. And... Um, that's why, you know, for me, going into the World Cup, I, I couldn't have asked, genuinely couldn't have asked for anything else in terms of support from, from anyone. And, you know, when I look back at the, the plan and, and what we did and when we did it, I wouldn't change so much. Yeah. So that must be a pretty good environment to work in from a commercial perspective. Yeah, it was great. Um, to have that alignment, I think, is very fair. Um, and uh, the sponsors absolutely valued it. Um, and it just made it more of a pleasant environment for everyone to work. It really was a team effort. You know, everyone felt that in their own little way, they were helping the team um, to succeed. And everyone was just very proud of the culture and what we kind of stood for. Um, it became much more inclusive. And, uh, yeah, I think it was a, a really, really positive time uh, for the RFU. And I think has left it in good stead to where, it, where it's gone on to. But those kind of fundamentals, which were so out of sorts um it just kind of reset the whole the whole sport quite frankly um and uh yeah commercially that meant a lot you know i think a lot of the partners that we were working with and the same with broadcasters sky bbc etc you know they're a pretty good judge of what we were doing well and not and uh, the feedback that we used to get uh, was unprecedented i've never had feedback like it from partners they really valued um, the trust. I think we were also very open. Stuart was great as far as sort of giving them a bit of the insider's perspective um, so that, again, they just got more aligned. They understood why stuff had to be planned in advance, why certain messaging was really important. They really felt that they were kind of inside the tent and, and on the bus with us as well, um, which was, yeah, really, really powerful. They just became very, very invested in what we were doing. Can I ask you from your perspective, how quick was the turnaround? And because and, you know, a lot of people listening to this would be interested in how you change cultures and how you get that message across that we are now an open organization that will listen to internal criticism, but that is all tending or trending in the same direction. How, how did you, on a practical level, witness that turnaround in culture? Um, I, honestly, I think it happened in a short space of time, it happens within about six months. Um, and then it, it takes 
a while longer to really embed and for people to know that it's here to stay. But as far as people seeing just a complete shift on what in what the RFU stood for, um, I, a couple of things come to mind. I think um, when finally we kind of hit rock bottom and there were a bunch of management changes, we did a press conference and for the first time ever we apologised and we took responsibility for what we'd done and we were very open and transparent and said we didn't have all the answers but this isn't good enough and it's our fault and we've screwed up. It was an indication that was just very black and white, a big difference in what we'd done and that kind of set the tone again. Stuart kind of led that. He was the most public figure along with some of our players that we had um, in the media and we just were a lot more open, a lot more transparent. Not that we said all our sort of game and strategy secrets but um, we were much more communicative and proactive. Previously, we kind of put the, the shutters down. Um, I think um, in addition to that, um, we tried to be much more inclusive. Um, and that went sort of throughout the organization, but then just our tone of voice, how we were interacting with the game and the community um, and what happened at the grassroots level. Again, really helping to assist them um, just with a very different kind of mindset. Um, and then the success that we had on the on the field. So after a pretty terrible um, World Cup run, um, we then had a very successful Six Nations. But again, the way the players were fighting for each other, um, the way they represented themselves in front of the media, um, really kind of coming together. It was just a very different look and feel to the team, and you could see it from them playing on the field. Um, so I think those kind of three things um, just yeah really resonated and people felt okay yeah this is a change and look it's consistent it's not just happening in one area actually it's translating here and now i'm seeing it here and then i'm seeing it here and that consistency just continued um and um as we yeah evolved the organization we made further changes we relaunched what the brand stood for um and various other kind of communication um changes that we made um it just kind of snowballed um, but the change, I was all, it was a real learning for me, you know, how quickly things can go bad, but also if you get the right people in place, you have strong leadership, you have a very clear vision. I think we really just simplified it. We decided we were going to do that through our performance, led mainly by what happened on the pitch and through the values. And we were going to live and breathe those every day. And I still remember them now. We, we sort of engineered our values, the treads, teamwork, respect, enjoyment, sportsmanship and discipline. Um, and they were everywhere, sort of emblazed everywhere throughout the RFU. Um, and just, I think people believed it. They saw it. They heard it. We weren't just talking the talk. We were walking the walk. Um, we held people to account. Um, and, yeah, I think um, the, the switch happened quickly. But then you had to keep going because we knew that it could slip back very quickly. Obviously... I mean, we know a good bit about your background and, and how you got to the position where you were in charge of the team, but um, the the career path, Sophie, that you had to get to the point where you were in charge of the commercials for the World Cup in England for the RFU is pretty interesting, um, and it takes you a, a trip through um, WTA, the, the tennis organization, and also the NBA in uh, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Um, maybe talk to us a little bit about who you are, will you, just to kind of try and fill in the, the full picture of um, how you end up with that massive responsibility. Who am I? That's a very good question. Still trying to figure that one out. This proper conversation will probably help me. Um, no, so I, I felt very lucky to get the RFU role. I think they were probably more surprised than I was that I got it. Um, because it was, um, yeah, it was sort of in 
back a little bit in the old days of the RTU without wanting to be um, critical. It wasn't like, you know, I joined and everything changed positively. But I think, um, you know, credit to John Steele, who actually had left the organisation by the time I started, but he was the one that hired me. Um, and I met with the board and I remember I was down, I think, to the, the final three or four um, and... I didn't probably think that they were going to hire me. I mean, to hire a woman who was under 40 wasn't really kind of stereotypically what the RFU were looking for. Um, but I think I did a pretty good presentation, offered the job. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, coming from the MBA, so you sort of talk about the MBA and the RFU, they're probably at ends on the spectrum as far as being progressive and innovative. But I have to say, and credit to the RFU, I mean, it was the most amazing opportunity and what we were able to achieve and what we were allowed to do and how we were empowered was pretty phenomenal. Uh, I would say at the end of my sort of almost five years at the RFU, um, it was actually more innovative, more progressive, and change had happened quicker than it ever would have done at the NBA. Um, and I think once we got the right leadership um, on board, they really did empower us. And I think it was also a learning when you hit rock bottom, it's kind of that burning platform. And we fundamentally changed things. We changed the brand, we changed our commercial strategy, we completely um, redid the stadium. Um, and all sorts of things. And there really wasn't any pushback. They really backed us. And I think it was because of the performance on the pitch and how we were doing commercially certainly helped that. That kind of gave us some credibility pretty quickly. Um, but it was a fascinating time to be there. And actually, how you imagined it kind of might be actually on the inside was very different. The board were incredibly supportive, um, as were the council. Um, and I remember actually probably our proudest moment at the RFU, that nothing had changed in ticketing for I think 90 years at the RFU. <laughs> and it was the one commercial decision that the council, the famous RFU council had, was they had approval over ticketing. And I oversaw ticketing, so this was always you know, an interesting challenge. Anyway, we took about two years to get the process sort of ready and what probably fundamentally completely changed ticketing. We changed the pricing, we changed the categories, we changed how we were going to market, how we were going to the clubs. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think going into the process, we thought the, the chance of getting any of this through was um, a non-starter. Apart from one individual, it was a unanimous yes when we went to have these changes made. So I think that just shows how things can change. But, um, yeah, before I joined the RFU, I was at the NBA um, looking after their international business, which was amazing experience. Um, I think um, I definitely, from them, learned it's worth sometimes taking a bit of risk. Um, and also the power of social and digital media. Um, I think they still set the standards globally with what they do from a social standpoint, how they utilize their athletes, their creativity. The content they've produced is very inspiring and sort of build that emotional connection. Um, and it was something we focused a lot on at the RFU. Um, they also had an amazing leader, um, but was a very black and white straight shooter. Um, from a media perspective, I learned a huge amount from him. I mean, talk about transparency. Um, and just being very straight and really over-communicating, um, very, very proactive with the media, and it paid off in spades when things aren't going according to plan. They just feel a little bit closer to you, and they know that you've kind of brought them um, inside the organization a little bit more, um, so it gives you a, a lot more slack. It was interesting. I just got back from Australia on Friday, and I'm sure it's got some coverage over there. The recent Cricket Australia um, very unfortunate situation um, and it was interesting just how they handled it compared to how the NBA I don't know I was um, speaking at something down there and um, we were sort of doing a, a comparison analysis and uh, 
God, everyone would hate to be in the, the situation in Cricket Australia were, so I'm not going to criticise them. I don't know if you had a chance to see um, Steve Smith's um, press conference when he finally spoke to the media, and he was brilliant. I mean, it was it was literally almost a one-on-one, I think, in how you, or 101, in how you handle those kind of situations. Um, so um, that was the MBA prior to that. Um, yeah, I worked in tennis for a long time at the WTA and then previously um, at Adidas. Um, so that was different again. That was probably where I had my closest exposure to athletes. So I oversaw all of, all of the top players, which was fantastic experience. At the NBA, it was slightly different. It's a league, and so the clubs um, very much managed um, the teams. Um, but the league still had a decent amount of control. Um, it was very well organized, very well structured, partly because of their collective bargaining agreement. So it's quite different to how things operate in Europe and definitely in the UK. Um, I think that international exposure was fascinating, you know, working with all these different cultures and markets, which again is something still trying to really create that Englishness within the team when England is such a melting pot of different nationalities and we've had at least three or four different sort of nationalities that were absolutely English as part of the, the England team. Um, and how you kind of assemble that and have a common theme and get them behind a common cause when they're coming from such diverse backgrounds. So um, I, I found that fascinating. And I think my prior kind of international experience hopefully helped a little bit there. So, um, so yeah, so I've had quite a varied um, career um, and been given some opportunities that, quite frankly, I probably never deserved to, to get. Uh, I've made the most of them and uh, had some good leaders who kind of looked after me. So, yeah, it's been amazing. And now surfing is sort of <laughs> taking it to a whole new place. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating time to be in surfing too. A lot of change over here. Leaders' Questions with Stuart Lancaster is brought to you in association with Cisco Systems and Exertus Ireland. Cisco are leaders in securing your business information. Don't believe us? We analyse 6 billion emails a day. You think your inbox is full. To hear more, visit intelligentit.ie. Pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Sophie, just a question for me, because I actually don't know the answer to this. Um, if you're a young um, leader listening to this, um, you know, it goes on the radio, podcast, whatever, and they're thinking, oh, my God, how, how do I get into the world? Did you do, what, what degree did you do? And did you do, like, an MBA? How did you get into the Adidas job, I guess is the question. Yeah, so I went to um, school and I figured out to play professional tennis or try and play professional tennis. I was quite good by British standards and then I started playing overseas and realised really I was pretty crap. So um, I was fortunate to get a scholarship um, to an American university. So I went to university in the States at Baylor um, and I did an economics and international business um, degree um, and played, played tennis for four years. And then when I graduated, I decided I wanted to do an MBA. And so I did an MBA in international business. And as part of that, of course, I had to do an internship, and I was very fortunate to get an internship at Adidas. And while I was there, a job opened up, and it was too good to turn down. So I, that was my first job. Okay. Um, and so I actually never went back and finished my MBA. I only had one class to take, and I always promised myself I would, but you only had a five-year window, and that kind of passed, and uh, so I never did get my MBA. Um, but, hey, it was an amazing opportunity to get to uh, work at Adidas. I mean, my first job out of college was working in sports marketing for a sports Fun that I loved, and I'm, but I always say and it's not being negative against the UK or England. Or I am actually half Irish. My mother's Irish, um, but I don't think I would be in the position I am now if I hadn't started out my career in the US. I think just the size of the sports business um, and the professionalism of it. 
I think also, I mean, it's an interesting time, obviously, at the moment. I don't want to make this a Me Too conversation, but just the equality and the opportunities. I mean, in, in the US, it's um, legislation that forced it through, and it actually goes back to college sports, Title IX, which was something that Billie Jean put in place, where you have to give the same number of scholarships to women as you do to men. And so it's kind of set at a very early age in the sports profession, um, which I think just leads to more opportunities. Um, so I'm not, so I don't want to turn people off. You have to go to the US to make it. I don't think that's the case. I think the world's caught up a lot, but I think just the size of the US sports market and their organizations are bigger. They just, there are more opportunities. So I feel quite fortunate that I started out um, in the US. It obviously then took me back to the UK. Um, and to be honest, I thought I'd be in the UK forevermore. I wasn't planning on coming to the US. This kind of came up a little bit out of the blue. Um, but, um, but yeah, that was, that was how I got involved. When you were at the WTA, just doing a bit of reading about that, you did a deal with Sony for 88 and a half million, which was the biggest sponsorship deal in women's sports history. Can you talk to us a bit about putting a deal together like that and, and how you suddenly understood exactly the size of the value that you had and how you can convince a sponsor to go, hang on a second, you have the opportunity here to get value from this and this is how much it's going to cost you? Yeah, it was, um, it was an amazing deal for the WTA and there were a lot of people involved, as you'd imagine, with a deal of that size and actually because it had all sorts of different implications. Um, but it, um, yeah, absolutely contributed to every level. So the top athletes benefited, as did all the, di the different tournaments as well. Um, and it was a great brand fit. I mean, at that time, so that was back in the early 90s. So when cell phones were just becoming big and social media and digital was just coming online. So it was a great time to be associated with a brand like that. Um, and they took a punt. I mean, women's tennis was just beginning to make a resurgence. I was really lucky when I was there. So... Um, the top 10 was literally the who's who. We had the Williams sisters. We had Kornikova was still playing. Martina Hingis, Sharapova was coming through. Kim Kleister's Justine Hennon, Lindsay Davenport. I mean, compared to men's tennis, actually, women's tennis overshadowed it. And it was during that time that we got equal prize money as well. It was kind of a good time. To, we made the most of it. Um, and, um, and Sony Ericsson kind of backed us. And the reason they signed was they wanted to be young kids proper to be associated with. They also felt that their phones were seen as being very male focused, just about hardcore tech. And they kind of wanted to soccer that image um, and appeal to a broader demographic. So so yeah, they backed us in a big way. Um, it was a guy called D Dutter that did the deal from Sony Ericsson and his CEO was very um, very supportive as well. He was the CMO. Um, and he was kind of visionary. He used to take quite a lot of risks. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it um, it paid off for both of us. It was a game changer for tennis, uh, not just the level of investment, which was significant, but just that brand association that a company like that was willing to make such a big um, statement. Um, it was it was awesome, and the athletes were really proud of it. You know, they loved it. They all got a phone as part of the deal, and um, it was just it was a good. You know, if we partnered with some other kind of brand, I'm not sure they would have been quite so excited. Um, Again, individual sports, very different to team sports. Um, but uh, Sony Ericsson actually helped kind of bring bring them together. Um, so, yeah, so it was an amazing time for sport. It was uh, uh, a great deal for us back then. The, the theme of this is obviously leadership, and it's clear um, that Sophie exhibits a lot of leadership. You know, we're, we're kind of, um, we're asking for people, where do you get your style and where do you develop your philosophy from? Um, and I know, Sophie, said you've got a lot of, 
people who helped you along the way, but it does seem as if you've got your very own style that um, when you talk about being an agent of change and enjoying that, where did that come from? Um, I don't know if you'd say that. I don't know if it's true. Um, I don't know. I've, I've worked with a lot of great people. I mean, I've learned a lot from Stuart, quite frankly. I mean, as far as leaders, I think Stuart's right up there with the best of them. I mean, as far as integrity, consistency, um, thoughtfulness, you know, thinking at every level and of every possible little angle that could ultimately go into helping a team be successful um, and really stand for something very powerful. Um, I think I've always been, I guess I've kind of always prided myself on relationships. Like I, I love spending time with people. I love communicating. I love listening. Um, so I feel quite comfortable talking um, to people. Um, but yeah, I think it's kind of kind of evolved. But I'm, I'm much clearer in what I want to stand for. Um, and uh, how I think I can best motivate people, what keeps me challenged and um, kind of energized. The four or five people that stand out during my career that have made you know, a massive impact that I've had the chance to work um, quite closely with, and they've really, yeah, shaped me, whether it was consciously at the time or not, probably not. But as you get older, you sort of start reminiscing, and as different things happen or you're in certain situations, you're like, oh, shoot, that's what he dealt with back then, or that's how she handled something and that experience really really pays off I mean I know it's sort of stating the obvious but it but it does you know then you're almost willing to take more risks because you kind of you back yourself that you've been in similar kind of situations and so you just kind of have more confidence in how you're going to deal with things I think um without being complacent I think that's hopefully one thing and maybe I'm probably sounding a bit arrogant with how I'm answering some of these questions but again I think it was another thing that England got right under Stuart's leadership was just being humble. You know, you can see how quickly things can change. So A, never be complacent. Um, and B, you know, if you're humble and um, don't take things for granted the way I am. It's funny being over here in America at the moment where um, they're not always the most modest. <laughs> so I think I, the Brits stand out. As they, they always laugh. You, you apologize for so much. You know, before you even start saying something, we kind of apologize and said sorry. Um, but I, I think that's a great trait, personally. I'd much rather be like that than kind of brash and bold and thinking, you know, you rule the world. So um, I think my Britishness is quite a good trait. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think just... Talking, talking um, about my perception of Sophie's leadership style. Um, one thing I, I think she was uh, one of the, the best traits, Sophie, that you've got is, is she's honest. She's honest. You know, I mean, she's she's, she's straight. So she's got a brilliant poker face as well. <laughs> so you can't tell what she's thinking half the time. There'll be times I'll be going into the board meetings or the management meetings, and Sophie will be sat there, and you know, be getting reactions from the people, and Sophie will be sat there, I'm thinking, what was Sophie's thinking about this? But uh, anyway, no, I. Uh, I think honesty is, is one of the, it's a great quality of a leader and uh, I think I mentioned before we came on air, we were talking about you know, the World Cup and the disappointment for me personally, um, but Sophie was the only one after the World Cup who was honest with me really and gave me some, some honest feedback and uh, you know, I appreciated that, um, her reaching out to me after the event, after I'd left um, and you know, we've not seen each other since I don't, I don't think, but uh, we've certainly stayed in contact and uh, you know, I was delighted when she, she got this job. Yeah, the value of um, relationships is something that I think people underestimate. That like, there's a lot of, I mean, we've talked about a lot of books that people have recommended over the course of these, this series. But actually, it's great 
having all that knowledge and information, if you can't actually speak to somebody and go, the truth is we're having some difficulties here, yeah. and unless we clear up what these difficulties are, we're not going to progress together. Um, that's probably something that is um, not spoken about enough and taken for granted a bit. Yeah, I think, I think um, the easiest thing when you're in charge of an organisation, it'll be interesting, I'll serve you the question in a minute. Um, when you're part of a management team, you have a little bit more space. When you're the number one, i.e. the CEO now of the World Surf League, um, or you're the England head coach or, or whatever, um, people tend to treat you slightly differently. And the danger is then you become disconnected from the organisation. So you, you go into your office, you deal with the day-to-day, -day, the week-to-week stuff, you know, the amount of emails and phone calls that are going on. And actually all the things that got you to that point, i.e. the ability to build and maintain strong relationships, you lose along the way. Um, so, you know, I made, it, I made a big effort to try and connect with everyone in the organisation from, from top to bottom, but it's, it's draining. Um, but I'm interested to know, Sophie, how have you found that now, now that you're um, the CEO of you know, the World Surf League and, and you're the number one, how, how's, what's the challenges been, and I guess, and how, have you, how do you feel you've developed as a leader? It's a sort of new sport to learn, as well as um, a new position, living back in the States again. Um, I think you're absolutely right. You know, spending time with your, your people is as important as it gets. Um, and it is really time consuming. And then when you're sort of in charge, you've got all this other stuff on your plate. But you have to carve that time out. I mean, you know, even looking at it selfishly, um, if you can properly manage your team, empower them, make sure they feel motivated, then they're going to perform much better, which is going to make you look good and the organization be more successful. So um, it's something I try and spend a lot of time doing. I don't give it enough time, um, but um, I think it's absolutely fundamental. And that's at all levels. There are a few experiences, but just in general, it's definitely, Stuart, how you act is just not being hierarchical. I mean, you never know where the next great idea is going to come from. And if you really want people to feel on the same team, then treat them as peers, treat them as real colleagues. Um, so I have my desk, I sit out in the middle of the office. Most of my other executive team have offices around the organization. I sit out, I'm in a cubicle, totally open plan, sitting with the most junior people in the organization around me. And I think to your point, A, that gives me a better pulse on what's going on in the organization and hopefully just makes me more approachable because as you become more senior, I think whether you want it or not, people aren't as comfortable coming to you with things. And there's nothing more damaging than not hearing bad news soon enough or directly. Um, and so I really try and reward people for letting me know the bad news as well as the good news, because actually the bad news often is what's going to make us better. And we've got to learn from you know, those issues. I don't want them brushed under the carpet. And just that real openness and transparency for me is kind of the most, I don't think I've got it right yet. Um, but it's something that I'm, uh, I'm very focused on. We've had a couple of not particularly positive incidents since I started that I kind of uncovered. And um, yeah, we've made kind of a big deal of them, not in a negative way, but just to say it's okay to ask for help and to not know all the answers and to screw up. It's natural. Um, it's actually something that it didn't strike me when I was first living in the US. So I don't know whether it's just now I'm in the California bubble because I didn't live in California before or because um, it's an interesting time to be in the US with Mr. Trump. But um, despite all that, I have to say this, it's the positivity and like the acceptance of making mistakes is so different over here compared to back in the UK. And I don't know whether it's just changed recently or I'm just in a different mindset, but it's really empowering. And it's sort of a massive weight off, I think, everyone's shoulder. You know, over here, it's very much be successful. You've got to screw up a bunch of times. 
Whereas I think back in the UK, if you screw up, it's kind of a burden on your back for a long time. I mean, Stuart, you and I both felt it, you know, after 2015. And it, you know, it was not like right on to the next thing. I mean, you didn't have to wait very long until the next match. You only had to wait a few months. And OK, you know, the World Cup was was a big deal. But the, the way they would deal with it over here is, is very different. And I'm not saying America's perfect. It's clearly got plenty of issues. But that I, mindset and... Uh, attitude sort of that american dream um phenomenon does still exist and just taking more risk and not worrying about screwing up um i find it pretty liberating it's been really interesting and it's kind of i think impacted my leadership over here i mean i've always kind of tried to pride myself on being innovative and being sort of quite visionary and trying to do new things um but i've kind of taken that to a new level (laughs) (laughs) so i think probably everyone in the organization is going slightly crazy just on that. I think that's another thing. Um, don't take yourself too seriously. I think good leaders, you can't, you can't take yourself too seriously. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> Just to, to get the to get people to come with ideas um, and to you know because you know there's no such thing as a bad idea. But then everybody's heard loads and loads and loads of bad ideas. It's making sure that you encourage people to continue to hone their idea generation skills. How do you do that? Um, I think by properly carving out time. So what we've done here, so every quarter, I have a half day off site with my direct reports and it's just an innovation session. And um, we can talk about it a lot, but if you don't carve out time, because it takes time, you know, you've got to step away from your day job, whiteboard, um, just, yeah, really get out of your comfort zone. And then within the organization, we've also set up an innovation committee, um, you know, give it the respect it deserves. Um, and by putting time and effort into it and then feeling rewarded and that they're getting exposure at the senior level, um, I think it helps sort of encourage that kind of behavior. Um, so those are two small things. And we'll see, time will tell if they work. But I think at least it's, yeah, putting some action behind, you know, rather than just being innovative. I mean, it's kind of, I guess, a bit of a buzzword, you know, disruption, innovation, um, all those kind of things come and go. But I, th- I think it is a mindset. Um, and it's, I think linked to it is being willing to take a little bit of risk. You know, I think you can't be innovative without taking risks. If you know it's going to work, then it's not particularly innovative because everyone will be doing it. So um, I think it's, you know, um, being okay with making mistakes um, as long as they're not massive and uh, really costly. I think that's fine, especially at a younger, a younger level. Um, I think it's very inspiring for people too. you know, to know you're in an environment that's going to keep, you know, looking to making a lot of changes um, at the moment. And, uh, and the organization's slightly creaking with it um, because we've got a lot of people that have been in surfing for a long time, um, which is great. And we need that kind of credibility and understanding of the sport. But um, if we want to kind of keep up in our game, we have to continually evolve. Um, and I noticed kind of things were creaking. I was like, God, this is a bit of, I don't want to burn everyone out. I've only been here six months. It's not going to look very good. So do I kind of lower our standards a little bit and not push them so much? Or do I just kind of take the pressure off the accelerator and just be more patient, give them more time to get there? Um, and I guess, again, you probably won't be surprised to hear. I'm sure you would probably do the same thing, but to keep rising. You know, if we want to be competitive in this global world, but we don't have to do everything tomorrow. You know, it's okay to take a little bit more time and allow people more time to kind of get up to speed. So I've decided we're maintaining our standards. Actually, we're going to keep increasing them, but I'm not going to expect it all to change overnight. Um, which, yeah, I'm sort of dealing with, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the last trait of a great leader is patience. Uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> how, how, are you on, how are you getting on with the um, surfing on a lake, Sophie? 
Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you need to explain, explain, because you told me, and I was like, that is amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, so we, um, so our sport is owned by um, a couple of um, individuals. Um, so it's quite different to other professional sports. So it allows us to change a lot because we control the rules, the competition, the schedule, everything. And we have all the athletes signed up to exclusive long-term deals. So it's no committees or anything like that to deal with. These um, <laughs> athletes of all time, definitely the greatest surfer ever. For 10 years has been developing this wave technology, this man-made wave technology, which now allows you to create 10 to 12 foot man-made waves in a lake. So it's a purpose-built, it's a big infrastructure. Um, but now you can push a button and the waves start rolling. Um, and one of the challenges and delights of surfing, they take place in the ocean, our events at the moment, and you never know exactly when they're going to take place. It depends on the swell and the wind and all sorts of other things. So we have 12-day windows, but the competition only actually runs for four days. So from a broadcasting perspective, it's a bloody nightmare. Um, but these wave systems change that. Um, so you can push a button, and at 8 o'clock on a Saturday night, the event will roll. So it, it's a game-changer for us. We're still going to have many events in the ocean because that's the heart and soul of the sport. Um, but strategically, it allows us to go to new markets and from a broadcast perspective to really grow our audience especially as we get ready for the Olympics in 2020, it's, uh, it's a huge opportunity. So if you can imagine, hopefully you and a bunch of the, the listeners and viewers can join us. If you can imagine watching surfing on a man-made lake with the seats come up out of the water and a wave is coming towards you, that's what you can now view in surfing. And it's floodless at night with the most amazing camera angles with athletes doing these ridiculous jumps. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's pretty special. I mean, I always thought rugby players are about as brave as it comes. I mean, you see a lot of NFL, obviously, over here. Um, and when I say I worked in rugby, everyone is like, oh, my God, they're the ones playing NFL without any pads on. These guys are amazing. They're so crazy. I'm like, yeah. Except they don't use their head, thank God, um, well, most of the time. But I have to say these surfers are pretty brave. What they're putting their bodies through is pretty phenomenal. Um, so, anyway, that's my sales pitch. So come see an event at the Kelly Slater Wave Park. It's a pretty good. It's a pretty good, compelling sales pitch. Definitely, I'm in. I'm in. Get me to Santa Monica. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll do the next version of the show over there. We'll exactly. Do the yeah, yeah, we can do that. So this has been this has been sensational. I think everybody Absolutely. watching and listening expects the uh, World Surf League to be a massive success. Thanks a million for your time. Oh, pleasure to meet you. Great to see you again, Stuart. Good luck with everything. Finish the season strong. Will do. Thank you. Cheers, okay. Thank Bye. You. Leaders' questions. Thanks to Cisco Systems and Exertus Ireland, providing a secure, intelligent platform for digital business. Visit intelligentit.ie.